A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, Jim. Great to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand. Uh, we begin the second week of the new year with some familiar themes and some new ones. Uh, the familiar themes are, as we began the new year, markets are reassessing the prospects for interest rate cuts. And I know we both want to talk about that in a little bit more detail later on. But I want to start the podcast by talking about something completely different, and that is China. China and Taiwan, actually. Because we've said before in several different podcasts, actually, how 2024 is going to be the year of the election. Um, The year is actually bookended, we think, with Taiwanese presidential elections this week, later this week, and US presidential elections in November, towards the end of the year. There's still a chance we'll get a UK general election after the US presidential election, but we shall see about that. I suspect it'll be before rather than after. So Taiwanese presidential elections in the frame this week, and the Economist's tracker of polls puts a Mr Lai, L-A-I, I hope I pronounced that correctly, in the lead with a five-point lead. So it's not massive, it's just about in excess of the usual margin for error. And it is widely expected that if Mr. Lei wins, uh, this will enrage Xi Jinping of China, because Mr. Lei is an independence-minded presidential candidate. Taiwan, uh, our historian listeners will remember, was once fully part of China. China thinks it still is, and there is an uneasy acceptance that uh, Taiwan's status is somewhat fuzzy. Even America accepts that and engages in studied ambiguity over its stance. China wants it back. Taiwan used to be called Formosa. The Kuomintang, again, forgive me if I've pronounced that incorrectly, party, which was the party that lost to Mao Zedong in China's internal wars, uh, and they fled to Formosa and it became Taiwan ever since China has wanted it back. Uh, They really, really do want it back. The CIA has warned that China will be ready for war over Taiwan sometime during the second half of this decade. 
Now, those words are important because everybody will be aware that we are very close to the second half of this decade. It is, after all, 2024, albeit the beginning. And the CI has actually put a date on this, 2027. So we, we, we're getting closer. So if this Mr. Lay wins, it, we can expect a few fireworks and certainly some rhetoric, if not military exercises and some kind of confrontation. Maybe. But let's hope not. If his main opponent, who's second in the polls, wins, he's the head of the Kuomintang party, he is regarded as a more emollient chap, a more centrist chap who is more in keeping with this studied ambiguity that people have, and he wants to have some dialogue with China. But there again, he doesn't want very much. And uh, Xi Jinping is expected to become frustrated with him as well. The real problem for whoever wins the presidential election in Taiwan is that what's shaping up is that the Chinese want to offer Taiwan the one country, two systems solution that has worked appallingly badly in Hong Kong. That's the deal that Hong Kong got when they achieved, uh, when they, Britain gave Hong Kong back to China all those years ago. And most people in Hong Kong, or at least the people who are committed to democracy, do not believe that one country, two systems has worked. So Taiwanese are blowing a big raspberry to that solution as well. So whoever wins, really, there's going to be trouble. And Xi Jinping, like Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, is waiting for Donald Trump in November, that other election that bookends the year that I mentioned. And both men, for their different but similar reasons, uh, think that Donald Trump is going to be quite open to what they want. Ukraine, uh, Donald Trump has promised to solve within 24 hours, presumably by giving Putin everything that he wants. That is Ukraine. And Donald Trump has also said, reportedly, to his aides, while he was the president of the United States, that he would not act to defend Taiwan in any shape or form if the Chinese attacked. And he has said publicly that Taiwan needs to be criticised for stealing America's semiconductor industry. So, Jim, I think that there's trouble a-brewing over Taiwan. I certainly hope not, but it's certainly one of the many political election-type things that we will be keeping an eye on as the year progresses. And as we have said uh, in our last podcast, or at least I did, and I, I think you agreed with me, that uh, whereas interest rates will remain incredibly important for economies and financial markets, geopolitics will be joining them centre stage, will be joining interest rates as an important driver of economies and markets. Um, Was I right? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I I do indeed, Chris. 76 states holding elections in the next 12 months, uh, as you say, bookended by Taiwan this week and the United States in early November. There are definitely the two key elections because um, when I was sort of growing up in the 70s and 80s, uh, the Cold War relationship between the United States and the USSR was the dominant geopolitical theme. Um, I think the dominant geopolitical theme over the coming decades will be that between China and the United States. And obviously, Taiwan economically, politically, strategically is an incredibly important part of that relationship. And that's why, um, as you correctly say, this week's elections are just so important. And um, the, I guess what does really complicate, as you've said, is come November, if Donald Trump does 
get re-elected. Well, that changes the whole relationship, I think, in a very, very sinister way. So very definitely um, anybody concerned about this should just look at what you refer to there, what pro-democracy people are thinking in Hong Kong at this juncture. Um, it has not worked out well. And uh, likewise, you'd have to think for Taiwan into the future. And of course, from a global chip um, point of view, you know, Taiwan is an incredibly important part of the whole um, IT ecosystem. And uh, you, you would have thought that if China does eventually attack Taiwan, which is a high probability, um, the attitude of the United States to that will be the most important element. And if, as you say, you know, Trump does get re-elected and if he uh, delivers on his promise not to intervene to protect Taiwan, well, then um, I, I just think the whole global geopolitical backdrop will be thrown into incredible turmoil. So, yeah, Chris, it's geopolitics in the next 12 months much, much more important than economics per se. Well, maybe as important, maybe more important. We'll see. It has the capacity, to, certainly, to be more important. A small, almost sidebar comment about things going on between China and the West. There is a, a judgment in a California court due today, actually, about a Chinese-American naval officer uh, who I think has been found guilty of spying for China and handing over all sorts of different secrets for what seems like a paltry sum of money, given the risks that he must have taken, $15,000 of a bribe to hand over secrets. And he could get up to 20 years, apparently, for spying for China. And there was a recent conference held by under the auspices of the FBI in Silicon Valley, in which the so-called uh, Five Eyes Intelligence Chief, the Five Eyes are a group of countries, the US, the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, uh, they are a, a group that share um, important secrets and cooperate in intelligence matters. And they recently upset the Europeans in general, the French in particular, by agreeing to supply Australia within that grouping of the Five Eyes with nuclear submarines. The French got very upset about that. And th this conference in Silicon Valley, which was hosted by the FBI, um, was all about intellectual property theft in particular and... Um, military spying in general. And China was described by the FBI at this conference as the greatest threat facing us today. Um, so it's pretty pretty stark stuff. And we, I think we tend to hope for the best. Um, I, I actually think that we should be more uh, attentive to things Chinese right now. I think that this has the capacity to become incredibly significant over the months and years ahead. But anyway, Jim, to more prosaic matters, I know there's been a ton of economic data for Ireland and for Europe since we last spoke. And you've got some comments about any and all of that. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct, Chris. Uh, we got the end year exchequer returns late last week um, for 2023. The Irish exchequer ran a surplus of 1.2 billion. That's down from a surplus of 5 billion in 2022. Um, however, there was four billion transferred to the National Reserve Fund um, in February of last year, so that would have reduced the surplus. But the Department of Finance was quick out of the blocks and saying that if you adjust this 1.2 billion surplus 
for that 4 billion transfer to the National Reserve Fund for the proceeds from the disposal of bank equity, which is mainly AIB. I think that was about 280 million. And also the estimated, and I stress estimated, excess corporation tax receipts. So if you exclude those factors, the Department of Financing is suggesting that we'd have been running an underlying deficit of around 6.5 billion. Uh, the cynical piece of me would say, well, if you exclude everything, you know, we, we'd have a massive uh, deficit. Uh, and you, you obviously can't do that. The figures are what they are. But I think what the Department of Finance is really mindful of is the fact that um, over the next 15 months, we have um, European elections, local elections and a general election. And of course, the temptation from all parties across the political spectrum is to throw money at everything that moves in the next 15 months for or to promise to do so if you're not in government for political purposes. So the Department of Finance is clearly concerned about that. It will never come out and make explicitly political comments, obviously, because it is the Department of Finance. Uh, but certainly the warnings and the cautions from the Department of Finance last week um, is, is very mindful of the fact that um, with a surplus being run with our national debt level as a percentage of GDP, um, very, very low, much higher as a percentage of GNI star. But our national debt situation is in reasonable control at the moment. So there's a strong temptation to throw money at everything. And that would worry the Department of Finance, particularly because, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, uh, the possibility at, at some stage the corporation tax take um, might fall significantly, although I stress the Department of Finance certainly is not building that into its um, medium-term fiscal projections. Uh, but that was the note of caution. Um, if you look at the breakdown of the tax revenue side, um, total tax revenues came in at $88.1 billion, which is a record level and is $5 billion or 6% ahead of 2022. And uh, three, three, uh, three key headings, excuse me, um, corporation tax, income tax and VAT made the significant contribution there. $32.9 billion in income tax collected, up 7.1% or $2.2 billion on last year. And what that's, re on 2022 at least, what that's reflecting is the strength of the labour market. We know at the end of September we saw a record level of employment being achieved and we also know that wages expanded quite strongly last year and um, basically there's a lot more income tax being paid reflecting the strength of the labour market. Uh, the VAT 20.3 billion up 9.4%, 1.7 billion up on 2022. That reflects a pretty decent level of consumer spending last year in particular. But car sales, we got data last week showing that new car registrations last year were up by about 15.5%. So that's reflecting the VAT side. And the third piece then is obviously the one of most controversy. That is the corporation tax take. 23.8 billion collected, up 5.3% or 1.2 billion. Um, and I, I would say about all of those four data points I've mentioned, total tax revenues, VAT, income tax and corporation tax, 
all of those totals are at the highest level of taxation collected in this country on record. And what it is indicative of is an economy that in 2023 delivered pretty decent levels of economic activity. Because I, I do believe, and I've often said it, there is no greater indicator of what's happening on the ground in an economy than the tax revenues that are being collected. So my overall conclusion on the exchequer returns for the end of the year is that 2023 was a good year. And in the next 12 months, I would expect the labour market piece to remain quite strong. I think consumer spending will hold up reasonably well, albeit somewhat slower than in 2023. So that means income tax and VAT should continue to perform quite strongly. Um, obviously, the big question mark will be over what happens on the corporation tax front. And from month to month, particularly in the important corporation tax payment months, we'll be watching very, very carefully what's happening there. Uh, but it's, it's a good story. And I think for a government facing into three very important elections in the next 15 months, um, it does set a pretty decent um, fiscal backdrop, to be honest. Well, I think IFACT would disagree with that, wouldn't they, Jim? Yes, they uh, would. Yeah, they, IFACT would, absolutely. And other critics, uh, fiscal hair shirt types, um, fiscalists, shall we call them. And I guess it's old-fashioned economic theory, which is, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, which is that you mentioned an underlying, or if you exclude all the funny stuff, deficit of six billion for an economy that's at full employment? Would that be a fair description? Yeah, ab absolutely, Chris, it would indeed. OK, so we have a six billion deficit at a, with an economy at full employment. Old-fashioned textbook economics would say if you've got an economy at full employment and a government with quite a large uh, debt stock outstanding, that's the time that you should be running budget surpluses. Would that be also a fair thing to say? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It would indeed, Chris, yeah, absolutely. There's a, there, an element of caution is certainly required. So the fiscal position from a political economy point of view is good, in that they've got more money to give away if they want, presumably, but from an underlying economic rationale, principles point of view, it's it's looking decidedly dodgy. At least I think IFAC have said that. Is it, would, you, would you agree with IFAC or disagree with them? Um, I mean, I would agree um, from an economic perspective because, uh, you know, clearly um, spending money aggressively, as the government has done 
on the back of a tax base that part of which at least that's the corporation tax piece could prove vulnerable at some point in the future, you know, is a dangerous strategy. But what IFAC, IFAC and others, I, I don't think, well, they realise it, obviously, they don't come out and say it, but there is the political reality here. You know, we are facing into three elections, as I've said, over the next 15 months. Uh, there are significant pressures emanating from housing and health and law and order. All of those three areas will require increased expenditure. There's no doubt about that. Um, I guess where I would be critical of government in terms of spending is the various cost of living packages that have been implemented over the last 12 months, particularly, you know, the ESB credits we're all getting on, on our electricity bills, for example. All of these things have cost a lot. And I think a lot of them smack of populism rather than uh, a sensible economic strategy. So I would share certainly some of the concerns of IFAC, but I would also have to recognise um, in the world of real politics, this is exactly what happens. And I go back to what we spoke about in the last podcast. Um, I mentioned a blog from Simon Ren Lewis in Oxford, you know, who spoke about the need for governments to actually run bigger debts in the current environment in order to address the climate change challenge because his argument would be if you do not spend the money today that you'll end up spaying, paying a lot more um, in terms of cost down the road. So um, I'm not against spending per se but we really do need to think more and focus more on the quality rather than the quantity of that spending. I think any government spending that actually solves a long-term problem that adds to the long-term growth potential of the economy is very desirable. Um, my concern, as I say, would be on this sort of populist throwing of money at everything that moves for electoral purposes. So it's a mixed picture, Chris. The point about Simon Ryan Lewis, uh, Professor of Economics in Oxford, is, is well made because I think um, it's been said generally, not just about the environment, is that there's a question over the rainy day fund that the government has set up into which it's pouring billions every year. And the, the simple point has been argued by several people, I believe, that it's raining. And why are you setting up a rainy day fund when it's raining? Why aren't you spending the money? And it's raining in several ways, in, in, in several places. The first that you mentioned there from Ren Lewis is the environment. You clearly need to spend money to save the planet or to make a contribution in a small way to saving the planet. Um, that's both, uh, well, that's morally and ethically an imperative, definitely. But the crisis facing housing and health and law and order are areas where it's raining. So spend the money and the country's infrastructure uh, has all sorts of problems. Spend the money. And so I think that far from being fiscal hair shirts, um, economists could, and indeed one we've spotted in Oxford, is arguing the other way, which is, yeah. this, is this is a time for, um, for strategic thinking. This not a time for giving the money away in populist you know, ways that you've just eloquently described there. It is a time for investing and spending money on curing very obvious problems spending money to build cloud cover, if you like, um, cover from the rain, um, to, use, to, to, 
press that metaphor too hard. So I, I think that you, you could argue this in all sorts of different ways, but of course we would, everybody would agree that just chucking money willy-nilly at people that um, frankly don't need it in many, many cases uh, is, is, is ridiculous. But as you say, it, it, is, it is populist. So I, I, those are all interesting theoretical arguments, but we do, we do know the way it's going to go over the next 15 months, isn't it? It's going to be a tussle over who gets the giveaways. Yeah, it is. Absolutely, Chris. And that, that's the reality of politics. Um, there was another report um, published today, Monday, that I'd like to refer to. Um, PwC um, published data on corporate insolvencies. And sev- there were 717 corporate insolvencies in 2023. Uh, that, is that a lot? That, well, yeah, it's equivalent to two per day. Okay, in 2021, there would have been one per day, for example. But there was a strong upturn in the final quarter of the year. And the sectors, uh, and there are no surprises here, the sectors that are being highlighted are the retail sector, the hospitality sector, and construction companies. They accounted for over 50% of the um, insolvencies in 2023. And those three sectors, uh, and this is an issue we spoke about before, but it's going to become an important issue for small Irish businesses over the coming months. And that is the revenue debt that was warehoused during COVID. Um, it's estimated that the 60... 60- so that's money that money that companies owe in back taxes, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the revenue commissioners allowed them um, not pay that back pay that debt back but it's due to be starting to be repaid in April it is estimated that 60,000 companies have warehouse debt 1.8 billion but 85% of that warehouse debt is estimated to be held by 10% of those companies and the retail hospitality and construction sectors account for half of that revenue debt Okay, so you can see where the the pressure point will be on the indigenous business landscape this year. It's retail, it's hospitality, and I think it's smaller construction businesses. But also uh, the PwC report points out that the commercial real estate sector um, will have problems in 2024 as well, because, um, you know, we, we, we're seeing obviously the increased interest rates are impacting there, but also the working from home, the vacant office space and so on. So all of these things are interconnected, as we always say. Uh, but um, it's so 2024 in terms of indigenous Irish business does promise to be more challenging. And um, we've heard I've at least I've heard a lot here over the last few days from the hospitality sector. You know, we saw the VAT rate being inexcusably increased in my view on the 1st of September last year for the hospitality sector. Uh, the minimum wage is going up on the 1st of January, just gone by 12%. Um, energy costs are still at elevated levels. Um, the recruitment and retention of workers, wage pressures generally. So there's huge, huge cost pressures 
on businesses in the hospitality sector particularly um, and of course the increased interest rates contributing to all of that and as I say you superimpose on top of that the fact that a lot of those businesses are, hold, are holding significant levels of warehouse revenue debt so I think a more challenging year for certain sectors of the Irish economy is certainly in prospect. Um, the- Jim, can I just cut in there and, and yeah. add something to our previous discussion about fiscal policy and whether or not they're going to do giveaways and where they should be spending the money, should they be spending the money at all? We've said on this pod before, round about budget time actually, that if you take a bird's eye strategic view of the needs of the Irish economy over the next number of years, we know where the big strategic fiscal threat is coming from, and that's corporation tax suddenly shrinking as a result of any one of a number of factors coming into play. You know that's your threat. So the way in which you counter that threat, we argued at the time, is to nurture, to grow, to mentor, to do everything that you can to grow the domestic Irish economy and reduce the vulnerability that you have to this external foreign-owned, welcome though it is, sector of the economy so that you continue to welcome foreign companies coming in you continue to encourage them to grow in ireland but you also use the fiscal space that you've been given by all of these revenues to do all sorts of interesting and powerful potentially powerful things for the irish domestic economy and in particular that of course means smes and that's the strategic bit of the plan that's in my view completely missing that it's an opportunity going begging, it's an opportunity being missed, that this is, for the first time in a very long time, the opportunity for very smart people to come together and in a way have an IDA for the SMEs. The IDA has done a fabulous job attracting international business. Now, an SME IDA is needed and to be given the resources from the fiscal coffers that the government has to really grow the small and medium-sized enterprise of the Irish economy. It's worth doing for its own sake and it's also worth doing to counter the potential problems that will arise if the tax revenues start to drop off from that foreign sector. That's my sixpence worth anyway, Jim. Yeah, Chris, I, I agree with you. Um, I co-authored a book on the SME sector a couple of years ago where which very few people read or more importantly very few people bought but one of the arguments i was making at that stage was that um we need to look at setting up a specific state body with responsibility for the sme sector and um the you know borbia does a great job for food industry here um particularly food exports um, Enterprise Ireland does a great job in building up the export potential of small Irish companies, but there is a segment of the SME sector that doesn't export, um, per- perhaps never will, and many certainly won't because of the nature of the business they're in. But many of those businesses do not get the support and mentorship that they actually require. So I, I would, I would, well, I, I obviously agree with you because I wrote about it two years ago about the need to take a much more strategic approach to managing the SME sector here because obviously the economic imperative is to build a counterweight to the very important multinational sector, um, the future of which in this country is very much outside of our control in many ways. So yeah, counterbalance is really important. Uh, But I think the PwC report this morning certainly should make people sit back and think a little bit and policymakers particularly about what the environment for 
the SME sector is really like here. Chris, um, moving away from Ireland, and I'll be back to Ireland later this week because we have retail sales data um, and labour market data later in the week, which I think will be very, very significant. But um, late last week, we got a number of inflation reports um, from across Europe. Um, the headline inflation rate in euro area jumped from 2.4% in November to 2.9%. Germany jumped from a two-year low of 3.2 up to 3.7. France increased from 3.9 to 4.1. And we saw the Irish um, HICP measure go from 25 to 3.5%. Okay, so in inflation in December certainly disappointed on the upside. Um, the market reaction to that was um, pretty aggressive in the sense that bond yields have increased significantly. Uh, the 10-year bond yield in the States is back over 4% um, today. Um, bond yields everywhere else have increased. Agri-markets have had a very difficult start to the year. And that's basically because, as we discussed in the last podcast, um, the markets are reassessing the outlook for central bank interest rate policy over the coming months. Um, I think the markets certainly had got carried away in the run up to Christmas. We're now seeing a readjustment of that. Uh, but also, um, as is typically the case, I think the markets basically ignored the point that a lot of the increases we saw in the headline inflation rate in many countries in December is due to technical rather than underlying factors. You know, there was changes to um, energy subsidies in Germany, for example, that contributed to that. So there's a lot of stuff going on, um, but it, it's, it is quite amazing how those inflation reports late last week had such an impact. I would be pretty optimistic about the path of inflation over the coming months. Um, you know, I think it will, okay, there will be blips, obviously, as we saw in December, but I, I think central banks will continue to move towards the 2% inflation target. Um, and one thing that obviously what happens on the energy front will have a significant bearing there. And of course, the situation in the Middle East at the moment is really important in that regard. But the other important area I think will be what happens on the food price side. The United Nations FAO last week produced the December Global Food Price Index um, and it fell to the lowest level since February 2021. Uh, the price of sugar, vegetable oils and meats all down significantly more than offsetting an increase in dairy products and cereal prices. And in fact, last year, the FAO's food price index average was 13.7% lower than in 2022. So global food price inflation is certainly um, coming down. And of course, that will feed into headline inflation in a significant way. So that feeds into my general optimism about inflation in 2024. Yeah, I would agree, Jim. And I think that uh the stuff that we talked so many times about last year about central banks overdoing it, that's still very much in the frame, in my view. The lagged effects of, of prior interest rate rises that have taken place over the last year or two have yet to come through. And I think they will this year and that the fall in inflation and the weakening economic activity that will flow from all of that will reveal central banks to be behind the rate cutting curve. But that's a forecast. So what do I know? 
What the markets are forecasting is that they began the year saying that March was a nailed-on certainty, absolutely bang-on certainty for a US interest rate cut that would then lead other central banks to doing the same thing. Markets are now, in the space of just a few days, moved to saying it's more of a 50-50 bet. And that's where we're at. And that's why we've got these other markets, equity markets in particular, uh, being very weak. So uh, I expect this to continue. And as I said, right at the top of the show, one of the important drivers of all of this uh, market activity, bond yields and equity markets, is going to be interest rates, but it's also going to be geopolitics. So that's where I, for at least, will both begin and end the podcast, Jim. Okay, Chris. um, One final piece of data I'd like to make reference to was last Friday we got the latest Halifax house price index in the UK showing that UK house prices in December increased for the first time in eight months, 1.7% increase year on year, um, which is interesting and I I guess uh, shows this dubious relationship between interest rates and house prices that we've spoken about. Anyway, I just throw that in there. Um, Okay, Chris, listen, it's been great to talk again, and I look forward to um, getting back together later in the week. Cheers, buddy. Great.